Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. In each episode, we'll explore the role of the 56 state and territory AGs as chief legal officers for their states and their work protecting the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution. In today's episode, Montana Attorney General and NAG President Tim Fox sits down with Idaho Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. Well, welcome to this edition of The People's Lawyer. Uh, Today, I have the great honor and privilege of uh, having with me the Attorney General of Idaho, Lawrence Wasden, who is one of the longest standing uh, and multiple reelected attorneys general in our nation's history. Uh, And he's a great friend of mine as well, one of my neighboring states. Uh, We collaborate a lot. Uh, Lawrence, thank you for being with us and welcome. Thanks very much, Tim. I, I appreciate your friendship and I appreciate your leadership. We share a common border and more than that, we share a common kinship. And I wanted to give thanks specifically to you for your leadership on your uh, project, uh, Transformational Leadership and Civility. It's something that's terribly needed in this country. And it has uh, changed the thinking of a lot of our colleagues and our ability to work together. And I wanted to thank you for having the courage and the leadership to to bring that forward for all of us. So thank you. Well, thank you, Lawrence. And as you know, I'm uh, nearing the end of my time as attorney general. And I think one of the wonderful things about our association, the National Association of Attorneys General, is that there are a number of folks like yourself who have uh, bring that institutional knowledge because you've been with the organization, have been an attorney general uh, for so long. And this idea of a, a, a podcast is not something uh, unique to uh, what we're doing here. This is something you've done for some time. Uh, and you have a podcast apparently called Counsel to the State. Uh, how do you use that to reach out to your constituents? And, and what other ways do you uh, uh, message and reach out? Well, uh, this actually was a, a, the brainchild of Scott Graff, who's my public information officer, and Brian Kane, who is my assistant chief deputy. And we all recognized that there was a tremendous gap in people's understanding of how state government works, and more specifically, a huge gap in people's understanding of what the Office of the Attorney General does and is. And so we uh, created this uh, podcast called Council for the State, And the very first one is I, uh, Brian Kane and I were the guests and we sat down and kind of went through, this is the office of the attorney general. We called it, uh, I think, uh, attorney general 101. That is, this is what we do. This is what the constitution says. This is what the statutes say. This is what we actually do as opposed to what people think we do. And we've also used this podcast in in another way. And that is we opened that to other uh, officers in state government when they have a matter that they want to communicate to the public and they're able to do that. We've had uh, the state controller as a guest on our podcast and he uh, pr- uh, presented a, uh, uh, a new process for allowing people to see what's going on in the state budget and, and the state expenditures. And so we've also included uh, the secretary of state, and a county clerk who just last week were talking about the election and, and how things went and why things happened the way they did. So we're able to use that in a way that pro, uh, provides information to the public about 
what the Office of the Attorney General does and what state government does, does in general. Well, that's great. And I've encountered that uh, as Attorney General too, Lawrence, where people think that we have authority that we don't have or responsibilities that we don't have. I, you and I don't have any control over the weather. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it's, it's important that folks know what we can do and what we can do. But one of the things that the nation's attorneys general do very well, and you have exemplified uh, this area very well, is making sure that the disabled, dis disadvantaged, the disenfranchised be protected. And you were one of the first uh, attorneys general in our nation to set up uh, an internet crimes against children uh, task force uh, there in Idaho. Can you tell us a little bit about that initiative? Yes, uh, we uh, found out that there was there was federal monies available and Idaho wasn't getting its portion. And so we created our own uh, Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. It is not just the Office of the Attorney General. It includes the U U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Idaho, the FBI, the U.S. Postal Service, Idaho State Police. It includes uh, county sheriffs across the state, um, police departments across the state, county prosecutors. It's a wide variety of assets that we use. And what we have is a center that's housed in my office that has the forensic scientists and the investigators from all around the state in which we monitor and we investigate internet crimes uh, geared at children. That is sexual molesters and others who are dealing in child pornography, which when you think about a photograph of child pornography or a video, that is the filming, it's the taping, it's the photographing of an actual crime scene. There are children who are being victimized. And even though that child may grow older, they still are the victim of that event. And so what we've done is brought all of those resources together and then uh, we conduct proper investigations and then proper prosecutions. And it may be a, a state prosecution, it may be a federal prosecution, it depends on which agency has the best set of tools and how the facts flow to that agency. And so we have this cooperative effort across the state to protect our children. The outgrowth of that has been uh, tremendous public support, tremendous legislative support. And in fact, we've been able to save the lives of children, children who are being victimized, uh, not only by video or by by photograph, but actual physical victims of child sexual abuse. And you're this is a tremendously rewarding uh, experience to be able to save a child. It's also takes a very heavy toll on the investigators and the prosecutors because they have to deal with some really nasty stuff. So it is a very significant effort. It's very important and it actually saves the lives of children. Yeah, well, there are not a lot of jobs uh, in in the in this world where you can actually have that kind of impact where you're saving the lives of of anyone, let alone children. You know, during the COVID nineteen pandemic that we're uh, still going through, we've seen um, many folks working from home, children having to go to school virtually from home, and so there's a much greater use of the internet and technology. How does that relate to the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force? And have you seen any kind of an uptick 
in reports of that kind of illegal activity? Sadly and unfortunately, the answer to that question is yes. We have actually seen an, an uptick. Uh, and uh, there may be a variety of reasons. I don't know that we know all of them, but, uh, you know, stresses on the family and all the kinds of things that happen here. But um, today in 2020, uh, my uh, Internet Crimes Against Children unit has worked 854 cases and we haven't even completed the year. That's a, a 111% increase from the 405 cases we, uh, we worked during the same period uh, in 2019. And so uh, since March of 2020, we've worked 607 cases, and that's a 52% uh, increase from that same, same time period last year. So the increases are significant. Uh, the stresses on the family are significant, and we really have to commit the appropriate amount of resources uh, to, to this issue. Now, when I say appropriate amount of resources, this is a black hole into which we could pour everything that we have, and it still would not be enough. But we have to garner what we have, gather what we have, and apply those resources in a way that we can you know, protect children. Well, yeah, that's important. And I guess, would you have a message to parents and guardians about um, what to do to you know, make sure that their children don't fall uh, a victim to these uh, predators? Yes, the very first thing that parents can do is monitor their children's internet activities. Be aware of what sites they're going to, uh, have code words, passwords, all of those safety mechanisms in place. But the primary uh, defense against a child being sexually abused um, uh, by an internet predator is mom and dad to stand in the way, provide that protection. And don't be afraid to call the police, call the sheriff, call the prosecutor's office, let someone know if you find something amiss. I will tell you that we made a presentation to uh, a television station uh, a number of years ago, and the uh, the uh, executive officer of that television station within a few weeks called us to let us know how grateful he was for what we had sat down with him and talked about because his own two sons were subjected to an, an internet sexual predator. And he was aware of what the, sick, the signs were. He had a good relationship with his boys. They were able to talk to dad. And I mean, it wasn't what we had gone there to do, but we actually were able to intercede on behalf of those two boys and, and to save them. And, and it's, that wasn't what we had planned on doing, but it's what the outcome was. So the single most important message is mom and dad, you need to know what your kids are doing on the internet. Well, that's that's right. And the Internet is a can be a wonderful tool. And as you mentioned, it's also can be something that uh, uh, folks uh, engage in criminal activity. Montana is a lot like Idaho. We're a, a rural state. Um, and we've learned through the pandemic, of course, that not only with uh, learning remotely, but working remotely and telemedicine and all these other things, access to broadband has become even more important than it was before. Uh, I know that you helped lead a coalition of the nation's attorneys general to write to Congress and to specifically request that they include more funding for broadband access, particularly in rural areas. Uh, what is Idaho doing in that regard? And can Congress do more? And the answer to, to the second question is yes, Congress can do more. 
Um, and the answer to your first question is, what are, what are we doing? Well, I'll give you an example of what that has happened. Um, there's a very small community, as you mentioned, Montana and Idaho have some very small rural places. One, uh, one city in Idaho uh, is 310 people, 315, right around the 300 mark. And it's called Bliss. And it sits on a bluff above the Snake River. It's a very quaint, beautiful little place. But uh, there was no ability to get internet to those folks. And the reason was that the local uh, telephone company, the broadband company, would have to expend about more than three quarters of a million dollars to bring internet to 300 people. And there just aren't the finances there to recoup the cost of getting high-speed internet in that community. Well, with the CARES money that came to Idaho from Congress and from the ultimately the taxpayers, uh, a portion of that money was uh, granted by our gov state government to uh, develop uh, internet um, communications across the state. The city of Bliss was able to get a portion of that money and was able to install internet service that provides high-speed internet to that community, but not just that community. It also, as it overlooks that valley, it was able to help those in the valley as well. So it's not just 300 people, it's much larger number than that. The next largest community uh, is, is uh, about 800 people. So this is a very sparsely populated area and we've been able to get internet, high-speed internet to all of those folks. So in the, a tremendous effort, to do that, but it is critical, particularly during this COVID-19 pandemic, that those people have access to the rest of the world. So yeah, it's been a great boon for small communities. That, that's great work. Well, you know, uh, Lawrence, you, how many years have you been Attorney General now of Idaho? 18, 18, 18 years. years. Okay. So you've seen Attorneys General come and go, and you've seen much of the great work that we've been able to do collaboratively uh, reaching across the aisle oftentimes, working with our colleagues in, in other states. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the importance of that collaboration on things such as multi-state lawsuits uh, and settlements, particularly as it relates to uh, consumer protection issues? And, and ultimately, can you explain how those multi-state cases work and, and how do they impact the consumer? Yeah, there's a lot of misunderstanding about all of this as well. You know, the fact that, that we are elected in, in partisan elections and we've got an R or a D by our name or an I or something, uh, we have common kinds of responsibilities. And one of those areas, uh, say, is criminal law. And, and criminal law is not based upon whether you have an R by your name or a D by your name. A crime is a crime. And so in, in that same sense, with regard to consumer protection, consumer protection isn't whether you have an R by your name or a D by your name. If, if a certain actor or company is misbehaving in Montana, the likelihood is that they're also misbehaving in Idaho and Iowa and Texas and California and New York. And so we actually sit down and across partisan lines, we talk to each other. And we have that kind of rapport. That's helpful because we can pick up the phone and we can talk to each other. In fact, you and I had a conversation earlier this week where we just picked up the phone and talked to each other. I call you, you call me. 
But in terms of consumer protection, sometimes people think, wow, the AGs plan what, uh, what uh, uh, companies or what markets they're going to attack. And the answer is that's not true. Uh, what we do is we sit down and we compare notes. And I, as I mentioned, if someone's misbehaving in Montana, the likelihood is that they're misbehaving in Idaho as well. We, you and I talk. And so we then coalesce as a group and say, well, let's find out what's really going on, what's going on across the nation. And we work together and find out what's happening. And that's how a multi-state comes together. It's sort of sui generis. It, it comes of itself. It isn't that we uh, target anyone. It is what's happening out there. And what we're able to do is then bring to bear the resources and efforts that we have across the nation. And we can make some very significant kinds of changes about people that are, are violating the consumer protection laws. And when you think about that, that's the most fair thing to do. Because if you have uh, uh, participants in the marketplace that are living by the rules, they're, they're complying with the law, and you have someone who isn't, it isn't fair to those that are marketing properly. So it's a role that you and I have is to segregate out those that are misbehaving, impose the punishment, stop their behavior, and allow competition in the marketplace to occur on a fair, even playing field. And so that's why we have that role, and, and that's how we do it together. You know, one of the things that speaks so greatly to who you are as a person, Lawrence, both professionally and personally, and speaks to your character is that you don't limit your relationships to just the, the work that we do as attorneys general. Uh, you're usually the first person to call a colleague who we just learned uh, came down with COVID-19 or who just lost their mother. Um, you're, you know, you, you, you don't wait uh, for some sort of multi-state investigation to build those relationships. And I know one of the people, one of the one of our colleagues that you've worked real closely with, who has different political uh, philosophies than than we do, is Attorney General Maura Healy of Massachusetts. Um, it's you know this is a probably a little known fact about our Attorney General Association and our colleagues is that we don't just limit our work to what goes on in our jurisdiction. Uh, you recently uh, partnered with General Healy uh, to respond to the needs of our colleague in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria hit uh, that, uh, that small island. Tell us a little bit about what you and General Healy did and how that came about. Thank you. First of all, Tim, thanks for your kind compliment. Uh, that's interesting that that compliment comes from you, who yourself have spent a great deal of effort and time reaching out across political boundaries, across state boundaries, to create relationships with our colleagues. And so I, um, I compliment you and I admire your ability to do that. In fact, your entire uh, presidential initiative was geared toward doing that very thing. And you got a, a, a master's degree for that purpose. So I, I, I'm honored that you would compliment me. Uh, and I will tell you that I have a great relationship with my friend, Mara Healy. She and I come from entirely different backgrounds, um, entirely different portions of the country. Uh, we view the world from entirely different political perspectives. Uh, I, there's nothing that is similar in that regard about us, except 
at the heart, it is we both want to serve like you do. And as a consequence, she and I have a very wonderful personal relationship. She calls me and I call her. Now, why did we end up in Puerto Rico? And here's what happened. Uh, Puerto Rico uh, is a territory of the United States. They are a participant in and member of NAG. The Puerto Rican Attorney General came to us and she said, look, we need some help. Hurricane Maria just hit. It wiped out all of our offices. Uh, we have all kinds of problems. Can you come assist us with what we need? And so Mara and I and, and um, Peter Kilmartin, actually prior to Mara, uh, went to Puerto Rico to kind of assess the situation. And what we found is a couple of things. First of all, uh, Puerto Rico filed bankruptcy because their electrical system had failed. It wasn't just the system, it was the financing of that system and it put the territory of Puerto Rico into bankruptcy. The electrical system didn't operate and then Hurricane Maria came in and wiped out what was left of their electrical system. And not only did it wipe out their electrical system, it wiped out the physical facilities. We actually went to the office of the Attorney General in Puerto Rico and the interior of the building was caving in. The elevator was sinking down into the ground. We went to the uh, attorney general's office and the entire wall had been caved in on the office. I mean, the exterior wall had been caved in on the office. So the, the building has to be destroyed. Their offices have to be redone. Uh, Puerto Rico has um, basically a paper system. A lot of their papers were gone. So we sat down with them and we took an assessment of what is it you need? How can we help? And then we were able to help work with them in, to provide, in providing uh, computers and uh, software and all that kind of thing. Uh, we had looked uh, at their entire systems and said, not just the physical systems, but their procedural systems and said, how can we uh, short circuit this? How can we uh, pare it down? How can we make it more efficient? And so um, we were able to do that with our colleagues. I, well, I'm not gonna say we solved every problem because we didn't, but we did assist them. And I have to hand it to these folks. Uh, I was so uh, impressed and amazed with the commitment that they had. Um, we went to their offices and they had uh, their um, deputies, uh, attorney general, who were prosecuting cases. They were sharing office space. They were sharing a single, uh, multiple persons were sharing a single laptop that was so antiquated, we wouldn't even know how to operate them. And yet they were doing that and still showing up in court and doing their job the best they could. So my hat's off to those folks in a very, very difficult situation that they were willing to do the work, do the job, committed to justice. And the very least that we could do is try and show up, help them, get them appropriate materials, get them appropriate computers, help them get what they need to, talk with the appropriate public officials, um, even the PROMESA board, I've, I've volunteered to talk to the Financial Oversight Board to try and help get the resources needed by, uh, for uh, the Attorney General's office in Puerto Rico to do its very important job.
Wow, that's that's great work too, Lawrence. And um, you know, I have no doubt that should some other state or territory, one of our colleague attorneys general have a need uh, that the members of our association would drop everything and try to meet that need. And you've done that, and, and this is probably the subject of another podcast, but you've been instrumental in leading the, the, our nation's efforts in helping the, uh, the nation of Mexico in reforming their criminal justice system. Uh, and, and frankly, you have been the lead attorney general for our nation in that work. And so I want to thank you for that. You've even go, gone so far as to learn how to speak Spanish, right? I'm working on it. I read Spanish every day. I can't <laughs> say that I can do it very well, but I, I actually read Spanish every day to try and help myself uh, learn how to speak and understand Spanish. I, I don't doubt it. Um, well, you know, NAG is, is, as you know, a national organization. We serve the 56 state territorial and district of Columbia attorneys general. Uh, and I know that you have not limited your service uh, to just uh, working with uh, NAG, uh, but you've also similarly focused on another global organization and that's the International Association of Prosecutors. Uh, why is that international association so important, and and what has your work been with that organization? Yeah, well, yeah, thanks, Tim. This uh, this is really important in my perspective, and and you have been a big participant with uh, with CWAG and the Alliance Partnership, and uh, the work we've done in NAG, and you've been a big supporter, and it, it really is important. And here's why: I I, I guess I have two stories to tell. Uh, but one of them is that with the International um, uh, Association of Prosecutors, I was able to participate in a conversation with the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli prosecutors and the, um, the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Department of State. Because we were there and they wanted to talk to me, we were able to coalesce all of those people having a conversation. Where else? can you see the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government sitting down and talking to each other? I mean, this crimes that occur on one side uh, of the West, you know, in the West Bank or, or inside Israel itself, they cross that border. And so cooperation is really what's critical. And so having the opportunity in the IAP to work with uh, both of those entities to sit down and have a conversation face to face person to person so that we can break down those barriers and work together is, is very important. And I guess the other story I'd, I'd like to share is I was invited to co go to uh, El Salvador. And what was happening is that the attorney general of El Salvador was under um, significant pressure because uh, he was attempting to bring criminal charges against the uh, prior uh, president of the country. And those criminal charges were based on the fact that there had been uh, foreign uh, foreign funds that had come in to El Salvador for uh, the purposes of, of help. And that money had never made its way into the public treasury. It all happened to be in a series of Caribbean bank accounts that were under the control of the former president and his family. And so the prosecutor was attempting to bring criminal charges, but was under extreme uh, political pressure not to do anything. And so I went there not to really change anything other than to lift the profile of that prosecutor. 
of the attorney general of the country of El Salvador. And we had pictures all over us and I was wearing a, a, a PGR jacket or a, 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 a Fiscal General Republican, FGR, that's, that's, the, that's their Department of Justice. And, and, and just to kind of bolster him, let him know he wasn't alone. So because we created that relationship, a few weeks later on Christmas Eve, they were um, running, the, the FGR was running uh, a wiretap against an El Salvadoran and American group called MS-13. And they heard uh, on wiretap, they heard MS-13. It's a very violent group. I mean, these people are extremely violent. They kidnapped a whole busload of people in El Salvador and murdered everyone just to prove how tough they were. This, this group ordered the assassination of a witness against them. That witness was located in Maryland in the United States. And so because they uh, overheard this and it was Christmas Eve and they weren't able to get hold of uh, the State Department or the FBI or, or uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, DOJ, they were able to call Karen White, uh, who was the executive director of CWAC, she then called our colleague in Maryland. He called the Maryland State Police. The Maryland State Police went to that victim's home, that witness's home, and they collected her and her family and were able to provide them protection. The next morning, MS-13 showed up at her house to murder her. Fortunately, we were able to intercede and, and protect them. Now, I heard about that story six months later when the Attorney General of El Salvador was at our meeting uh, uh, in Utah, and he started talking about that. And I was happened to be sitting next to the Under Secretary of State, and he had been saying, now, why do you think this is important? And I gave him a good old elbow and said, that's why it's important. We were able to intercede in a way that saved the life of people and uh, allowed us to prosecute across borders. And so the only way we can really truly combat crime is if you and I, and we know this well, we cooperate with each other and we cooperate across international borders as well. That's why it's important. It truly is important. And Lawrence, uh, this brings us down to the close of our, our podcast. And I want to thank you not just for joining us today, but for uh, all that you've done for Idaho, for our nation, indeed for many other countries as well. Uh, and um, I look forward to hopefully working with you on uh, matters of mutual interest as I leave the Attorney General's office. I often joke with you that please give me a, a, enough years advance notice of your retirements that I can establish residency in Idaho and run for Attorney General, uh, but that's, that's a future conversation. So thank you, and, and thanks to your family too. I've gotten to know uh, so many of your your uh, uh, members of your family, your kids, your grandkids, and of course your great spouse Tracy, uh, because you make these things a family affair, and and that's pretty important too. And Tim, I wanted to thank you. Uh, you and your wife have been tremendous friends. You will continue to be tremendous friends. We've had opportunities around the world to be together, uh, and I, I've always looked forward to it. You since the day you came in. You have made an impact with people in our uh, AG community. Your leadership uh, in terms of civility, which is so badly needed in our country. I can't thank you enough for your leadership and most of all for your friendship to you and your wife and your family. Thank you so very much. 
Right back at you, Lawrence. Thank you. And this ends this episode of The People's Lawyer. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the work of state attorneys general, including conversations with individual AGs about important legal issues in future episodes. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.